0: Good morning. So before you leave today, on the back table, if you just turn your heads and look towards the back corner of the room, you'll see a table covered with cookie packets. My wife slaved for six hours, putting together these cookie packets for you as our gift of love to you. So please, there's one per family. If you have a very large family, take two. And we took the calories out of them before we made them. They are snickerdoodles, just in case you want to know. Basically 100% 100% sugar. So we'll hope you uh, enjoy those. Also, please remember, we would love for you to come and be with us on Christmas Eve. We have a 500-seat auditorium we are trying to fill. And so uh, I would miss you guys if you weren't there. I know some of you will have family things, but we kept it to an hour. We made it 5 to 6, so hopefully you can work it all out with your schedules and be there at our sending church where you can see where this all started. And that is on Saturday from 5 to 6. Also, just to repeat, we will not be here New Year's Day. So we're hoping you guys don't party too hard on the Saturday before. And even if you do, you'll drink coffee or whatever it takes and you'll get up and you'll have to drive maybe a little bit further than you used to But you'll come and and be with us on New Year's Day as we celebrate the new year and and all that that means for us as believers in Jesus Christ. So, come. This morning we're in Mark 12. We're back in Mark. And I'm glad to be back in Mark. We'll be looking at verses 28 through 34. I got one amen out of that. That's exciting. (laughs) Page 848. If you're using one of those church Bibles... There are some messages I preach, but it's hard to preach them. This is not one of them. This one I I will thoroughly enjoy, and I hope you will too, and I hope you'll be blessed by it. I titled it, It All Boils Down to Love, and hopefully that will make sense as we move through Mark's text this morning. I was listening to one of those false and perverted prosperity preachers the other day. I have a habit of doing that. And he was going on and on about what he believes makes Christians distinct or different or sets them apart in this world. You know what he said it was? Health and wealth. In fact, these are his words. Living long and strong. That's what distinguishes us as Christians. According to him, in fact, Christians shouldn't be jobless or poor, but they should have the best jobs and the most successful businesses and be financially well off and they shouldn't be sick and they should all be free of disease or illness. We should, in fact, have superior health and we should be living large. And that is what will make us distinct because people can't see our salvation... But they can see our personal success. And that will attract them to us and cause them to ask the question how are you so successful in your life? And then we can tell them about our sugar daddy, Jesus. My blood just boils. Unfortunately, this bogus message appeals to many. So these unbiblical lies keep getting promoted and repeated. And beloved, when something is repeated often enough and long enough, people actually start to believe that that is real Christianity. Beloved, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. What is supposed to set Christians apart or make them distinct is not wealth or health or success in this world, but supernatural love. Consuming love for God and sacrificial love for one another and for the people around us. That is what should make us stand out in this loveless and cold-hearted world John 13:35 you've probably heard this text before Jesus says by this all people will know that you are my disciples because you have a big house because you're free of disease because you drive a very nice car. No. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And beloved, this is obviously something that people could see. This was love manifested, poured out, acting, doing, expressing itself. Love and deeds of love. One man who made a significant contribution to Christianity in the second end of 2nd century, beginning of the 3rd century, he declared that the one thing that converted him to Christianity was not the arguments that he was given because he could find a counterpoint to every argument they would present. He was a very smart man, very intelligent man. But here's a quote from him. But they demonstrated something I didn't have. The thing that converted me to Christianity was the way that they loved each other. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. We'll be reading through to verse 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, that is, Jesus asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. And sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So if you have your bulletin, you can look on the inside, there is an outline. This morning we're going to ask four questions concerning the greatest commandments of God so that we might better grasp their meaning meaning, and live in greater obedience to them. Those four questions we're going to ask are, who should we love? How should we love them? Why should we love them? And why do we fail to love as we should? So that's where we're going this morning. Now the context, just to remind you of where we've been and, and where we are in this part of Mark, is this particular time in history is the last week of Jesus' life on earth. In a few days, he will be tried and he will be executed on a Roman cross. The particular place that this conversation is happening happening is within the temple, the Jewish temple. They are walking around in the temple, Jesus and his disciples. He is teaching in the temple and this is where the scribe approaches him and asks him about the greatest commandment the circumstances around Jesus and the temple area is if you don't remember let me just remind you the religious leaders of Israel had been attempting through several means to discredit Jesus or put him in a situation where he might have to where he might say or do something that would discredit him among the people or get him into trouble with the Roman authorities They were hoping, these religious leaders, to turn the crowds against Jesus. Get rid of him. Do whatever it takes to get rid of this man. They were out to get Jesus because he continued to expose their hypocrisy and challenge their cherished authority. They were unwilling to follow him. And his rise in popularity, which was at its greatest level at this point, was a threat to their way of life. Jesus now has successfully answered these questions that have been posed to him by the Pharisees and the Herodians about paying taxes. We talked about that in chapter 12 verses 13 through 17. Then there was this question from the Sadducees about the resurrection, chapter 12 verses 18 through 27. Both of those encounters were designed to trip Jesus up, but both of them were unsuccessful. But the religious leaders were not through asking their questions. And we don't see this in Mark, but we see it in Matthew, which sets this scenario or this scene up where this scribe comes forward and asks this question. So in Matthew 22, you don't have to turn there, I'll just show you here in a second on the screen, verse 34, this is the same account of the story with a few extra details. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, In other words, there was this conversation that took place where the Sadducees said, what about the resurrection, Jesus, not believing in the resurrection, and thinking they could make him look like a fool with the story that they made up about the man, the wife, who had all these husbands, and so on and so forth. It says here, Jesus successfully shut them down with his argument. It says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So the picture here is they're going to come together now and they're trying to figure out a new strategy. Man, whatever we throw at this guy, nothing works. He's making us look like the idiots. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law. Matthew here records lawyer and Mark records scribe, but they are two different descriptions of the same person. This might be helpful for you to know. Scribes were originally secretaries who duplicated copies of God's law by hand. That was their job. It was tedious, it was detail-oriented, but they would copy the Word of God. But sometime before Jesus came to earth, they became trained to interpret and imply that very law that they spent hours and days copying. And they became, in a sense, just like our lawyers are today. This was the law of God. They were copying. They knew it well. So they were trained in the art of actually interpreting that law and then prescribing that law. One writer says this, By the time of Jesus, the scribes were the sole source of legal and religious advice in the country. And indeed, they carried more weight even than the Scriptures themselves. In other words, people would seek the scribes' advice about the law and how to understand the law and their authoritative interpretation was even greater than, in some cases, the scriptures themselves. Now, the scribes' or lawyers' question was no doubt based on an ongoing debate that the religious leaders had at that time among themselves about how to categorize the commandments and which of the commandments was the greatest. Beyond that, they also had discussions about, of all the commandments, is there one that we could summarize the entire law with? Is there one that is so great it represents everything that God says? At this time, the number of laws, according to the rabbis or the Jewish religious leaders, the count was at over 600. 600 different laws. Some were considered to be lighter or lesser and some were weightier or greater in their significance, in their importance. And so this was an ongoing debate that they had among themselves. Now they bring this question to Jesus and they want to see what He has to say. Depending on how answers, could cause the crowds to turn against Him, could make Him look like a fool, could create, Chaos for him. So it goes something like this. Okay, Jesus, you seem to have all the answers. Why don't you tell us which is the greatest of all the commandments? Now, Jesus' answer, his complete answer, was drawn from two Old Testament texts. The first, loving God, he takes it right from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. That's the first commandment. And the second commandment he draws from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. What stands out to me and what I want to focus on today is what both of these commandments have in common. And that is the word love. That is the word love. Before we get started, let me show you one more time what Jesus said about these commandments. Mark chapter 12 Verse 31, he says, there is no other commandment greater than these. Of the 600 or over 600 commandments that they believed existed within God's law, that's a pretty substantial statement. The two I just gave you, there is no other greater than these two. And in Matthew's account of this conversation between the scribe or the lawyer and Jesus, there is this additional statement that is important to note, Matthew 22, 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Depend. Now the word depend is also translated hang in other translations. And I think that word is helpful to us to understand what is being said here? So let me just reread that. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. One writer says this. These two commandments are the greatest because all scripture hangs on them. Nothing in scripture can truly be obeyed unless these two are observed the entire biblical revelation, that just means everything that the Word of God has revealed to us, all of its revelation demands heart religion marked by total allegiance to God, loving Him, and loving one's neighbor. Pretty significant. Pretty important. What does love have to do with christianity everything everything no love no christianity a loveless christian must repent or stop identifying themselves as a christian period do you understand How serious that is? To remain as a loveless Christian is a contradiction to the Word of God. And it is really a contradiction in terms, period. To be a Christian is to love. So who should we love, beloved? Who should we love? Well, we're just focusing in on the text this morning. So that's our first question that we're going to try to answer. It's right here. Look back at the text, Mark 12.30. It says, And you shall love the Lord your God. Love God. Pretty simple. Any God? No. In fact, the context is very clear. If you look back at verse 29 and verse 30, there's a couple phrases here you should highlight. He says, You shall love... The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, and you shall love the Lord your God. The Lord our God, the Lord your God. This is the God who had identified himself as the God of Israel. Not some other God. Not any God. But the God who has identified himself specifically as the God of Israel. The one and only true God, the God of the Jewish scriptures, the God that is revealed in the Old Testament. Not difficult to understand, beloved, but often disobeyed. Sadly, for many, God is not loved. He is rejected. He is hated. He is mocked. He is ignored. He is cursed at. He is forgotten. Or, He is replaced with a God of people's creation, not the God of creation. The true and only sovereign, the supreme ruler of the universe. So the first is simple. Who should we love? The God of Israel. The one and only true God. The God who has been revealed to us in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and even greater in Jesus Christ in the new. Second, we must love our neighbor. This is simple stuff, right? Mark 12:31. You shall love your neighbor. Now, does this refer to the people that live on the house on my left, on me and on the right of me and maybe if I'm a big lover right across the street? Is that the reference? Well, the word basically means one who is nearby. That's what the word basically means, one who is nearby. And it can also be used as a generic term simply for your fellow man, mankind. This command is taken directly, like I said before, from Leviticus 19.18. So I'll read it to you. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, written to the nation of Israel, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now in its original context, where it was written and to whom it was written to and what was going on at the time, this was written to Israel. And there you can see that neighbor referred to a fellow Israelite. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But God did not intend love for neighbor to be limited to a specific people group or your own people or just the folks next door to you. And we know that very well because of Luke chapter 10 which we're not going to look at but Luke chapter 10 verse 30 through 37 which is a story or a parable that Jesus told in response to this question in Luke 10:29, who is my neighbor? Jesus, you tell me, who is, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, I want to know, you define it for me, who's my neighbor. And the story that Jesus tells, beginning in verse 30, teaches us in part that the neighbor would include anyone with whom we have dealings at all, or through various circumstances is simply nearby. The phrase, by the way, used today, Good Samaritan. you ever heard that phrase, Good Samaritan? It comes directly from this story in chapter 10 of Luke, verses 30 through 37. We use that phrase to describe someone who goes out of their way to help a stranger who is in distress. Good Samaritan. In summary, the story in Luke is about a Samaritan who came across a man who had been robbed, beaten, and left for dead. And the Samaritan did everything that he could within his power to help him, while two other people, a Levite and a priest, avoided him and left him on the road to die. The story concludes with this question from Jesus to the man who asked him, Who is my neighbor? Chapter 10 of Luke, verse 36. Here's what Jesus says. Which of these three, the Samaritan, the Levite, or the priest, the three who had encountered this poor man who had been beaten and robbed and left for dead on the road, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. That was the Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The original question was, who is my neighbor? That was the original question. But Jesus turns the question around and He said, who acted as a neighbor to the wounded man? Who acted as a neighbor? Instead of trying to determine if the wounded man qualified under the definition of neighbor and therefore should be shown love according to God's great commands, Jesus was teaching that the requirement is to be a neighbor to those we come in contact with or have dealings with, especially when they are in need of a helping hand. Wow that really expands the definition of neighbor. One writer says, one can never ask, who is my neighbor? Because the question implies that there is such a thing as a non-neighbor. Whoever needs me is my neighbor. End of story. So, we are to love God, we are to love neighbor, how should we love them? Look back at the text. Mark twelve thirty, And you shall love the Lord God with... What's it say? All your heart and with all your soul and with... I know you guys will get this because we have one more. We've got to do it all together. Your mind and with... All your strength. Now, some commentators, Bible commentators, those who make comments about the Word of God and try to help you interpret, some of them will break down each thing listed here. And that's okay. Heart, soul, mind, strength. They'll talk about how do we love God with our heart, with our mind, with our soul, with our strength. But the idea that is really being communicated by piling up all of these things is that we are commanded to love God with everything we have. That's the point. We can try to overanalyze this and try to figure out the particulars about exactly how I do that with my heart, my mind, my soul, and strength, but the, the intent of the statement is you love God with every ounce of your being. The entire person. God is to be loved completely and totally. And no part, not even a little part, of a person should be allowed to withhold love for God. The command for love is comprehensive and unconditional. This is not love God if. There's no if clause. It is love God, period. Beloved, we allow ourselves to be consumed by so many things and many of them do nothing to increase our love for God. Is that not true? In fact, some of those things actually decrease our passion for our God. Alright, so let's just move on. We'll keep looking at this. Just let that sit in your mind for a second. The second person we are to love is our neighbor. And how do we do that? Mark 12.31 says, The second is this, You shall love your neighbor how, as yourself. Now, this shouldn't be all that hard to understand, but it's still worth noting. We are to love neighbor with the same intensity that we love ourselves. This implies, beloved, that naturally we do love ourselves or have an instinctive desire to promote our own good and that the love we have for others or for ourselves should be directed equally toward others. See, the problem is not that we have a concern for our own welfare. If we didn't, we would be in trouble. If you didn't take care of yourself, if you weren't concerned for yourself, you would die. Right? I would hope you would take care or be concerned for yourself. That's not the problem. The problem is we have a concern only for ourselves. That's the problem. See, when Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, he said this, Let each of you, writing to the church, look not only to his own interest, not only, but also to the interest of others. Paul's not telling us to stop caring for our own needs, but to express the same care that we give to ourselves to those around us. How should we love our neighbor? Just as we love ourselves. Now, it's interesting. I... I'll read this to you and and hopefully it makes sense. But one writer said, self-love as being an original principle of our nature, that just means it's a part of who we are, and therefore it's not subject to the sudden change of the will, is wisely made the standard of men's love for one another which would otherwise be ever sinking far below the level of our natural regard for our own welfare. The writer is basically saying is, if this qualification wasn't put on the end of love your neighbor, then our love for neighbor would certainly sink below love for self. And so he keeps it at the standard. You know the love you have for yourself? You know, the care for yourself, that intrinsic desire to take care of yourself? With that type of passion, apply it to the person next to you. Not hard to understand. Why should we love them? That's the third question. Why should we love God and neighbor? Well, a simple answer would be, God said so. Do you ever have your kids? I know you do. You tell them, you give them an order, a command, and they say, why? I want to know why I have to do this. And sometimes if you're in the mood, you might entertain the question. Sometimes. But other times, you just, you just do it. I am the authority, I have told you to do it, that should be enough. Right? That should be enough. Yes. And it should be enough for God as well. But there are a few reasons to consider, and there are many other, but we do not have time. Since God made the world, I'll start with this one. Since God made the world and He made us, right? That's what we believe. Okay? Is it not reasonable to think that He alone knows how things were meant to work, to operate, or function correctly, or according to their purpose? I would say it's more than reasonable, it's logical. It makes absolute sense. So does it make any sense to choose to do things contrary to God's way or design if His way is the best way? If it is the way that will bring us the greatest joy and good as His creatures? Beloved, this right here is where humanity makes its greatest mistake because they believe a lie. The same lie that Eve believed in Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 5 when Satan communicated to her that God is holding out on you. I know he said don't eat from that tree, but he's holding out on you. He's keeping something good back. His way is not the best way. His way is inferior. There is another way that is better. And so like Eve, we choose another way. But ultimately, always to our sorrow, our hurt, our misery, our devastation, not only for us, beloved, but for those around us. You want to know why the world's so messed up? They're doing it their way. You want to know why Christians get messed up? They believe a lie. And they do it their way. Our sinful behavior to refuse to do things God's way is as ridiculous as trying to use a hammer to cut tomatoes. Picture that for a second. It wasn't designed for that. Do you understand? Hammer wasn't designed to cut tomatoes. We will never truly feel right or find fulfillment unless we do things God's way and according to God's instructions. That is one reason. If these are the two greatest commandments, and they are, the Lord of the universe has stated such, then it is all wise for us to follow them completely, faithfully. But there's something else. According to the scriptures, what we do in the Christian life is really pointless. Vanity. If it is not done in love. That's what the writer of Paul tells, or Paul the writer, 1 Corinthians tells us in 1 Corinthians 13. Listen to this. This is what he says. Pretty dramatic statements here. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, I make the greatest sacrifices. And if I deliver up my body even to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. If I do the most incredible things and I make the greatest sacrifices, but do it all without love, it is really an exercise in futility. It is useless from God's perspective. That's what the passages say. Useless. One pastor wrote this in his book called Love or Die. I love titles like that. Love or die. Regarding Paul's words here in First Corinthians. In these familiar words, we possess one of the most central principles of the Christian faith. It is this. No religious act is of any value in God's sight if it does not accompany and flow from Christian love. But men seldom ponder it seriously. If the implications of this one principle were consistently thought through, they would have a momentous effect upon us all. Since nothing is of value in God's eyes if it does not flow from love, then how much need there is for us to all correct our habitual formalism. What he's saying is, too often we focus on the external or outward appearances only, but not on the motive of our hearts, the why of what we do. And we end up just going through the motions of our religious rituals. Whether it be singing or giving or serving or praying or reading the Word of God or sharing it or doing good deeds, all of it is a big, fat waste of time in God's eyes without love. Now, it may accomplish good if I feed somebody and I have no love for them, I still accomplish something nice for them. But in the value scale in God's eyes, and that's the one that's important, if it were done out without, without love, if love was absent from the transaction, it was a wasted transaction. That's serious. Look back at Mark. One more. Mark 12:32 through 33. And the scribe said to him, "You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And and to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. What's it say? Is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Here, the scribe acknowledges the rightness and the truthfulness of Jesus answer to his question. And he goes on to add, in support of Jesus' answer, a statement that love for God and neighbor is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. What does that mean? Well, burnt offerings and sacrifices refer to the sacrificial system that the Jewish people were to follow without fail according to God's very strict instructions recorded in the Old Testament. These sacrifices and offerings were a form or ceremonial way of worshiping God. But true worship, beloved, is ultimately a matter (coughs) of the heart and cannot be achieved through ceremonies alone. One writer says it this way, Even the most sacred or holy duties, in other words, may not take precedent over love. And they have no meaning unless they are expressions of it. Did you hear that? Why do we fail to love as we should? Question four. And by the way, we could spend weeks talking about love. Because the Bible is filled with it. But I hope to stimulate you just this morning. Stimulate you in this area. To investigate it more for yourself. But why do we fail to love as we should? There are many reasons. For some, it is simply a matter of not really being a Christian a true believer not having a saving relationship with the God who is love. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 3 says if anyone loves God he is known by God. Sometimes I like to reverse statements so that they become clear. You could also say this, if anyone does not love God he is not known by God that's what the phrase is saying that's the logical counterpart anyone loves god he is known by god if anyone does not love god he is not known by god let's look at another text 1 john chapter 4 verse 7 beloved let us love one another for love is from god and whoever loves has been born of god and knows god anyone who does not love does not know god is that clear Because God is love. Romans 5, verse 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's how this transaction happens. We are filled up with God's love through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Who's the Holy Spirit given to, beloved? Everyone. No to Christians, real, bona fide, true Christians, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, those who have become His disciples. And we know that the first fruit that is listed as being a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5:22 says, "But the fruit of the spirit is love, is love." The love that we should have for God and others will not come from us. It's supernatural. It is actually a work of God in the Christian's heart. Beloved, if it was up to me, I would hurt people. I don't know how you're going to take that. Maybe I shouldn't have said it. I would hurt my neighbor. I wouldn't sacrificially love them. If it was up to me, I would still be in rebellion against my God. I would despise Him. I would run from Him. I need a changed heart. I need a supernatural work of God in my soul that transforms me and makes me a A lover of God, instead of a hater of Him, that allows me and gives me the strength and the ability to sacrificially love others. Even those that are hard to love. Beloved, no love, no relationship with God. No relationship with God, no salvation. No salvation, no hope but there is no good reason in all this earth to go on like that if you're here this morning and you know you don't have a compassionate love for God you this is not even on your radar you have no love for neighbor you have no consuming love for God It's not there. It never has been there. But you want to. Then I would love to talk to you after the service. God can change that in an instant. In a moment, He can transform you. You will be born again if you will come to Him and bow your stubbornness before His sovereignty and call upon Him as Savior. And recognize your need, and He will come in and do a work in you. And then the greatest thing you will love doing is loving your God and your neighbor. However, even a Christian's love for God and neighbor can grow cold and diminish... Isn't that true? In his book, Love or Die, he says external religious performance can insidiously, that's one of those weird words, it means gradual and harmful. Gradual and harmful. Insidiously replace true inner faith and heartfelt love. Sneaky. Sneaky slowly destroys, attacks our love for God and love for others. This is an ever-present danger. It is a problem that is often difficult to identify and to explain until it is too late. Yet it must be identified and corrected because love for God and neighbor lies at the very heart of genuine spiritual life. I couldn't agree more. And here's some of the reasons just to give you some some things to meditate upon this coming week as we celebrate one of the greatest acts of love this world has ever known and will ever know. Christ coming to save sinners. Here are some reasons we fail, beloved, as Christians to love God and love neighbor as we should. And I got these directly from his book and I'm stating it in the negative instead of the positive, but you can turn it around. I'll give you an example. We fail to study love, which means we need to do that. We fail to study love. If you want to pursue love, you must read and study what God says about love in His written Word. And let's just be honest for a second, at least with ourselves. How often do you dive in to this book Of love. Sundays. We have to study God's love. We have to go after it. And the more we study it, it will increase our knowledge of love, encourage us and motivate us to love. You know what else we do? We fail to pray for love. We pray for a lot of things, beloved. Now, we might pray that so-and-so over there fall in love with us, but that's not what I'm talking about. Here's a quote. One reason we see little growth in love in our churches is because we exert little effort in praying for it. (laughs) Oh, I might pray to get better. I might pray to find a job. All those things are important. I'm going to bring them to the Lord. He cares. He wants to know. But how often do our prayers consist of Asking and begging and pleading with God, help me love. Help me love you with every ounce of my being and help me love my neighbor in a way that blows this world's mind supernaturally, sacrificially. Help me, God, be consumed with love for you. When's the last time you prayed that, beloved? Because this convicted me. God says love, but we find it impossible in our own strength. So we must pray for the Holy Spirit's enablement or we shall certainly fail. We fail to model love. We fail to model it. He says in his book, We learn the most about love when we see it lived out in the lives of people. Paul instructed Timothy to be an example of love. To other. Show them what it's like, Timothy, to be a lover of God and of people. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.12 I have a plaque in my house. I read it on a regular basis. It says this, The best thing a man can do for his children is to love their mother. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. But that's one place to model love. We fail to guard love. We are not careful to keep out those things that threaten our love for God and our love for neighbor. In fact, we let our hearts wander and we allow them to be captured by things that do nothing to increase our love for God or neighbor, but rather they suffocate and destroy that very love. We might guard our house, put on alarm systems, become heavily armed. Right, Tony? Take self-defense lessons. We guard a lot of things, beloved. We guard our cars. We guard our self-image. We guard our reputations. Do we guard our love for God and neighbor? Are we diligent? A Christian should at all times keep a strong guard against everything that tends to overthrow or corrupt or undermine a spirit of love. Some of you might know this man, Jonathan Edwards. That's what he said. Five, we fail to practice love. We can talk about love all day. But love should act. It should demonstrate its reality in deeds of love. That's what God did, right? You know the passage. For God so loved the world. Period? No. For God so loved the world that He gave. His love gave to the uttermost. He gave His Son. Quote from the book, we must be practitioners of love, not theorists. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, love each other. Yeah. Yeah. That's good, that's what we should do. We must be doers of love, not talkers. First John three eighteen, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let me conclude this way. Last Sunday, a diehard New York Jets fan was savagely beaten on his own turf by a drunken gang of Kansas City Chiefs fans after their team was demolished on Sunday. True story. Maybe you heard it. One of the assailants beating this man said this, quote, You all deserved what happened on 9-11. What? See, that's the world, beloved. That's the world. That's the craziness. That's the chaos. That is what people are capable of. That they would beat to pulp somebody because their team beat their team. And then say something as radical and ridiculous as they deserved what happened on 9-11 because they're in New York. That's insanity. I only say that to just shock you, to wake you up. We shouldn't have anything even remotely associated with that type of thinking or behavior. Not even close. The thing that should set us apart as Christians and distinguish us from this crazy world. Insane. A world that refuses to submit itself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Refuses to love God with all of its heart, its mind, its soul, and its strength. Refuses to love neighbor itself, Can't even do it because it won't submit itself to God. It won't give themselves to Him. That world. We must distinguish from this world. Not by the measure of our health or wealth or worldly success, but by the measure of our love for God and our love for neighbor. That is the measurement that God is most concerned about. And that alone. It all boils down to love, beloved. Let's pray. Father, I am convicted, challenged, and encouraged. Father, You work in us and You have given us Your Spirit so that we might love You, be consumed by You, give ourselves to You completely and without conditions. Father, You have given us the power to to love in that way that You have loved us sacrificially to love one another. Even, Lord, to be willing to lay ourselves down, even our very lives, for the sake of another human being. You have done that. We must believe that. And we must obey these commands. Father, we must live according to Your instruction book. How foolish for us to think that we can not do that, that we can rebel against it and things will go well for us? Stupidity. Rebellion. So Father, work in our hearts, even now. Make us lovers. Your type of lovers. That we will really stand out in this world, not for, for what, for some ridiculous thing as, as our success in this life, or even worse yet, stand out for our, for rudeness, or our hate, or, or the mistreatment of our, our spouses, or, or those around us, or, or anything of that nature, but that we would be distinct. That people would be drawn to us because of this radical, increasing, intense love that we have for you and from you pours out to those around us. Wow! That would blow people's minds and that will draw people to Jesus Christ in a way that nothing else can. Because that is a work that you alone do in your people. Help us, Father, to live for You. Because in it, we find our greatest joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. And Lord, help us to believe that. In Jesus' name, Amen.